Welcome to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Food and laughter are two of my favorite go-tos when I need to de-stress. And we've got both coming up a little later in the show. We begin with something that a lot of us just don't really talk about anymore, and that is COVID. When I mention COVID, what do you think about? Are you still masking up at the grocery store or on an airplane? Are you still hearing about your friends coming down with COVID? Maybe even you had a bout of it. As a country, we have learned how to live with COVID, but it's still good to keep an eye out on the numbers and to talk about ways to stay healthy. GPB's Ellen Eldridge is our senior health reporter, and she joins me now in studio to talk. Hey, Ellen. Hi, Leah. So across the country, there's been this summer spike in COVID. It caused mask mandates to go into place. Here in Georgia, there was a a two-week masking mandate at Morris Brown College uh, that went, went into effect for about two weeks due to a COVID outbreak on their campus. Where do we stand with COVID? Right now, most of the state is in low community transmission, meaning that you're not extremely likely to get the virus. There are some counties over on the coast, including Effingham, Chatham, and Long, that are seeing more illness. Uh, Over the last week, the health service area that includes Savannah had about 367 new COVID hospital admissions. What about RSV? This is something else that uh, people have been watching. Yeah. And and, I mean, the whole idea of assessing, you know, how at risk you are, it's flu season. Mm -hmm. You know, every every year when the kids go back to school and, and people are traveling in the summer trying to get those last vacations in before the end of summer and the kids go back to school and all that, we're, we're transmitting viruses. And those include COVID, influenza, and RSV, which my co-colleague here at, at GPB, Sophie, wrote about how the RSV vaccine is now available. And it's it's even good for women who are pregnant to go ahead and get that vaccine. Okay, so the RSV vaccine, that's out. And then also this new uh, vaccine booster for COVID, which we have been hearing so much about, it is now out. And you're saying that the people that should consider getting it, because I know I was, I definitely wanted that updated COVID booster. I don't think I'm in those sensitive groups, but who should get that updated COVID booster? Yeah, so for for me personally, I'm, you know, 40-something-year-old woman. (laughs) I'm, I'm in general good health. Uh, But I live with my father and my mother-in-law, and I don't know that if I were to get COVID, if I would have a mild case, but then spread it to them and they would have a not mild case. Mm -hmm. So it's an individual thing. Um, The public health experts that I'm speaking with, they're saying basically don't panic. Uh, If you're at risk or you're around people who are at risk, you might want to go ahead and get that. Just like the, the influenza shot has a special version for older adults. I think it's it's stronger. Mm-hmm. So it's a personal decision. Mm-hmm. Okay. So fall, as, as you're mentioning, is fast approaching. The kids are back in school, more people returning to the office. And I know that you have been uh, covering the new uh, head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Dr. Mandy Cohen. Um, what are people talking about in terms of how can we stay healthy, these experts? I think some of the most important takeaways from the recent uh, talk with the the CDC director, Dr. Mandy Cohen, is that we have tools now. We are in a stronger position than we've been in the last few years in terms of our ability to protect ourselves. Um, But it means we have to use the tools that we've built up over the last number of years, which means making sure that you get vaccinated and protect yourself, boost up your immunity. And we'll talk more about the fact that these viruses continue to change and we have to stay ahead of them. 
So, Dr. Cohen, who is the new director of the CDC, you have been reporting on her, and you reported that her top responsibility is to restore public trust. How is she planning to do that? I think that the foundation for trust and, and what she, what I took away from what she said is that we need more transparency. And the people in in Georgia and across the nation don't necessarily know who to trust anymore because the fact is we just didn't know about the virus. We don't know what we don't know. And we've got the vaccines and we've got the public health experts and we need to listen to them. <laughs> and and but, but, but more than that, she says, you know, she's going to be transparent with everybody. She's going to admit when we don't know something um, and when the guidance changes. She won't be imposing a mask mandate from the CDC because it is that personal choice now. You have to kind of assess your risk, your community transmission and then, you know, your your situation, who you're going to be around. Transparency. I think people like the sound of that. I hope so. (laughs) I do. All right. Ellen Eldridge is GPB's senior health reporter. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thank you, Leah. As we continue to talk wellness and care, we zero in on rural Georgia now, where several hospitals have closed their doors. But a new federal program is giving rural hospitals an option to help them stay open. GPB's Sophie Gratis is with us in studio right now to talk about all of this. Thank you so much for joining us, Sophie. Thank you, Leah. So according to your reporting, eight rural hospitals have closed over the last 15 years in Georgia, but this new federal program is helping uh, rural hospitals, giving them a second chance. Tell us about this and what is changing for these hospitals. So it can it can get a little bit tedious, so I'll be kind of, I'll explain it the best I can. But basically the rural emergency okay. hospital designation it lays out a new model of care for rural hospitals. So just to be clear, we have a lot of different provider types and medicine based on their size, what kind of services they offer, and specifically, which this is important for the rural emergency hospital designation, how they're reimbursed for the care that they provide. So just to give y'all an example, um, in the 1990s, the federal government created the critical access hospital designation. This is another kind of provider type that rural hospitals can take advantage of. And that was in response to the closure of, of hundreds of rural hospitals in the country. The federal government said, hey, we have to do something to hopefully keep these rural hospitals from closing as quickly as they are. So with that critical access hospital designation, if a hospital qualifies to be considered as such, they get a higher reimbursement rate from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid because they're often seeing patients that are uninsured or underinsured, and that can be really expensive for hospitals to provide that kind of care. Um, So there are a lot of different designations, just to say that again. And as of January, rural hospitals have a new option Um, with some different benefits. And so that's the rural emergency hospital designation. It's a different provider type that rural hospitals have the choice of becoming if they 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 have to be in existence. This isn't new hospitals developing as this kind of thing. But um, existing hospitals can decide, I want to be a rural emergency hospital. If they're eligible, they'll get approved for it. And then they get some different benefits depending on that. So what does a rural emergency hospital do that a regular hospital doesn't do? So rural emergency hospitals, um, a lot of these are going to be originally hospitals that that are are what we think, right? You go in and you can get care for a chronic disease or you can get emergency care if you have some kind of injury that you've received. Um, But a a rural emergency hospital, uh, basically what they're doing is they're 
hospitals are signing a contract with the federal government, right? That they're, they're saying we as the hospital will transition to a model of care that instead emphasizes emergency services and outpatient services. And in exchange, CMS is going to promise to up their reimbursement rate for care and give them monthly payments. Um, those monthly payments are pretty important. It's about $272,000 a month, which adds up to about $3.2 million a year. Um, and so what these hospitals are, are doing is they're basically closing their inpatient services. That's when you think of maybe someone staying in a hospital bed for more than 24 hours, someone who, like I said before, may have a chronic illness that needs to be observed or receive treatment, or maybe someone who's gotten into a really bad accident and needs kind of the same thing. But instead, these hospitals are offering emergency services and outpatient care, and they're closing their inpatient care um, to focus on those two things. And then the federal government says, if you do that, we'll help you out with these monthly payments and upping your reimbursement rate. And hopefully that will help them stay open for those that were struggling financially. Uh, okay. So there's been some you know, pushback when it comes to changing what services that these hospitals provide, like reducing inpatient care for COVID cases. Tell us about that backlash. Inpatient care is one of those things that, you know, I think most of us, when we think of going to a hospital, we imagine it's a place where we can get all this different type of care, like really any care we need. But a lot of these rural hospitals, they're operating in a place where there aren't as many patients as, say, a hospital in Atlanta. Um, So our first, just to kind of paint a picture, the first rural emergency hospital in Georgia is in Irwin County. Um, There's just under 10,000 people there. And administrators at that that hospital, um, they say that last year, out of the 32 inpatient beds that they had, they were seeing less than four patients a day in those inpatient beds. So when you think about an inpatient, um, an inpatient unit, you're still having to staff that inpatient unit with enough people to take care of of patients that are coming in. That can be really expensive. And because they were seeing such a small amount, they said, "Hey." If we switch to this other model of care where people can still come into the emergency room, get the emergency care they need, we can stabilize them. And then at the same time, folks that maybe are are needing some management for care, they can do those outpatient services. This hospital also has a nursing home. So they were offering all these different types of things. But the inpatient beds were going pretty unused. So that's why they're saying this this new rural emergency hospital designation is helping them out. Um, They don't have to offer the things that that weren't really being taken advantage of. That was draining their resources. Um, They said that they were getting ready to close. So with the ability to to focus more on emergency care and outpatient services, um, now they, they can kind of skirt those costs that they weren't able to afford in addition to getting that extra help from the federal government. Um, So yeah, there is some skepticism about what closing inpatient beds might mean for a community. But for hospitals that aren't really seeing a lot of use in them, um, they're hoping that instead they can stay open, right, instead of closing. Um, and, and it just means kind of shifting the model of care a little bit. Mm. So will this new designation save more rural hospitals in the future? Will it actually slow this trend of closures Irwin County uh, Hospital in Osceola recently applied for the new designation, right? Yeah, and they've been approved. So they've been a they've been a rural emergency hospital now since since around March, but they're the first in the state, and we don't have a lot in the country yet. Um, you mentioned skepticism, and there is some skepticism among hospitals about whether or not this will work. As to as to whether it will, I mean, that's the goal, right? We want to keep hospitals open, access to care in rural counties can be really difficult. Um, Oftentimes people might have to drive an hour for emergency services or even basic primary care, right? So we want to make sure that these hospitals stay open. I think that's the goal of this program. 
Whether or not that's going to work kind of remains to be seen. I think as of September, there are less than 10 rural emergency hospitals in the state. That's hospitals that have decided to kind of take on this new model of care and see how it goes. If someone does come to a rural emergency hospital with care that maybe they would need to stay there more than 24 hours, these rural emergency hospitals are required to have transfer agreements with hospitals in surrounding areas, right? So for example, if someone came into Irwin County and they had to deliver a baby, um, Irwin County doesn't turn them away. Instead, they set them up with transfer to another hospital so they can still get that care. Um, So with that skepticism of closing inpatient care, um, that doesn't mean that that people in those communities can't get inpatient care. It's just going to maybe take a little bit longer for them to get it. I spoke with um, an advocacy group in Georgia that works with rural hospitals, and she said that they're they're telling people this is an option. They're they're saying here here's a thing: if you're a rural hospital that's struggling financially and you're not seeing a lot of use in your inpatient beds, here's a new way where maybe you can save some money. They're not going so far as maybe telling different hospitals to sign up, but there are definitely hospitals that they say are eligible for this program, that it could work. Um, it's just going to take those those hospitals to, to kind of pull the trigger and make that decision if, if they want to try it out. Finally, I want to ask you about this. You have been covering uh, this issue uh, for such a long time, and, and you've reached out, you've talked to different people. What are some of the stories that really stand out for you that give this um, this issue of face, you know, people who have struggled in rural areas. I mean, I've got a hospital I can literally walk to. That's not the case for everybody in Georgia. Yeah, I think some of the stories that stand out are actually from like healthcare providers themselves, um, because it can be mm. really hard to kind of coordinate this care. Like if you're a healthcare provider living in a really small community, working at a small hospital, um, you're really having to, to work with a lot of different puzzle pieces in terms of, you know, we're, we have they have someone come in who maybe needs a level of care that they can't provide. And now that person has to get mm-hmm. transferred to another hospital. So it's great to have that hospital in that rural community, right? Like we want to have those hospitals there. Um, but it can get really complicated for rural health care providers to figure out where they're going to send patients that may need a higher level of care than, the, than they can provide. And oftentimes, um, you know, a county may have one or two ambulances on hand, Um Mm-hmm. which means they're going to have to send out an ambulance. That ambulance is going to be out for two, three, four hours, depending, right? These mm-hmm. healthcare providers have to stay with people once they get to a hospital, um, wait for them to get into a bed, and then they can head back home. It just turns into this really crazy kind of maze of figuring out, like, how we can properly treat people in rural areas without the same access to care that people in ur- urban areas have. And healthcare providers, as we all know, they work really, really hard to do that. But mm-hmm. it can it can be difficult when there's a stretch of road that or, you know, when they're having to drive hours on end to, to maybe get to the place where that where that patient needs care. Yeah, this is such an important story. And we thank you so much for covering it uh, for us. Sophie Gratis, thank you so much. Thank you. After losing a friend to suicide, Hope Givers founder Tamlin Hall decided to create a space for teenagers to talk to each other about mental health and self-care. Just ahead, we'll talk with him about the educational show airing on gpb.org. Welcome back to Georgia in Play. We are talking about mental health right now. 
As we get into this next discussion, please keep this number in mind, 988. That is the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. It's open 24-7, and if you or anyone that you know needs help, that is the easiest number to get help, 988. Kristen Patillo is the director of the Georgia chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And she joined me in studio recently to talk. And just a warning that for the next four minutes or so, we're going to talk about suicide. So between social media and, um, you know, celebrities that have been talking very candidly about their um, mental health, even some athletes taking a step away from what they do to focus on mental health, I feel like this conversation is more common to have today uh, than it used to be. It used to be we just didn't talk about these things. Is that what you're observing, too? Indeed it is, and we are so grateful for the conversation and uh, normalizing having it and acknowledging that everyone may experience these periods where you need a tune-up, right? Like converging factors are happening, and whether it's, you know, an injury or an illness or a financial constraint, and you need to tap out and and get some consultation, and that is normal. So, you know, I remember uh, in college to this day, I have a very dear friend, and she, uh, in high school, attempted to end her life, and thank God she survived, but, you know, she got no help afterwards. You know, her parents took her home, and everybody pretended like it just did not happen, and she went for many years without that, without that help, and eventually got that help, and is now you know, doing um, therapy, is now doing therapy. So through pain came, you know, really her calling. But um, I know you have seen this, you know, where there are just no resources uh, that that happen. We see it over and over again. And um, I love the success story, if you will, there full circle, like the hardest of times and and trying to walk through the muck and and now being of service to others is wonderful. But yes, there are simply not enough resources, in particular for our youth. So uh, what do you do to take care of your mental health? And what would you advise us to all think about as we as we think about our mental health? I think uh, there are two things. So one, you, you lifted it up at the top of our conversation. So one, everyone needs to know about 988. It needs to be in every single person's phone. Make sure you share it to another loved one. Uh, you may think it you may never need it, but you might be in a, a time or a space where you're with someone that does. And so you have it ready. Um, the other thing is to acknowledge that suicide affects all of us and we all have a part to play in saving lives. So if you are seeing something, have some cause for concern. If you're seeing a change in behavior with someone that you know, it can be as simple as saying, hey, We've noticed, I've noticed that you haven't been coming to book club. We miss you. Are you okay? Open the conversation and let it sit there and let the person reply. Um, If you ask the question and you open that door, the research shows that asking the question can quite literally save lives. All right. Kristen Patillo is the Georgia director for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Thank you so much. You're most welcome. It is Hispanic Heritage Month in the country, a time when we focus on issues surrounding the Latinx community. Latinx counselors in Georgia say the stigma around mental health can be particularly strong in their community. According to the Office of Minority Health, Hispanics receive mental health treatment at half the rate that whites do. 
In Athens, one University of Georgia professor has been working for years to provide mental health care to the Latinx community there. Edward Delgado Romero is a professor, licensed psychologist, and associate dean of the Mary Frances Early College of Education at UGA. He created a program for bilingual graduate students to offer counseling free of charge to those who might not otherwise get it. I spoke to him recently about the clinic. Our clinic, it's uh, named Clinica in La Catch. Uh, that is a Mayan greeting that means you are my other me. Uh, the students who work there picked that name. I asked them to pick a name uh, that would be meaningful, and so they picked it a few years ago, and that's what what our clinic is, is known by. We offer individual uh, couples, family therapy. Uh, we work very closely with our law school to offer support for people undergoing uh, immigration evaluations. And there needs to be a psychological component to that. So these are the primary things that we do. And we do a lot of outreach and education in the community about mental health. You and I uh, met uh, several years ago to talk about mental health. Yes. And one of the things we talked about at the time was you were going to be getting uh, bilingual students to work in the community around mental health care in Athens. And what kinds of things have you all been doing to uh, to reach out that have really worked in your community? Yeah, there's no, there's no substitute for showing up. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned, the stigma, uh, part of the stigma about mental health is they don't see people who share culture or language. Uh, with them as providers. And um, so one of the things that we do is we attend a lot of uh, um, fairs, like for Latinx Heritage Month. Uh, we would um, go to schools. We try to participate in the community's life. And uh, we've been in a couple of uh, parades, the winter parade here in Athens. And although that seems a little like, what did that have to do with anything? It was really some of the times that uh, a lot of the, especially the Latinx kids, had seen themselves represented in a float. We did a Day of the Dead float, uh, and it was um, it was great. And it also helps destigmatize that you know uh, psychologists, therapists are just people, right? And so they're also this is our community, which is is why our name is You Are My Other Me because we're not stressing the difference in the lines between us and the community, but really that we are the community. What happens to our community is happening to us. So. Um, that's that's part of our philosophy. One of the things um, that we've talked about in terms of stigma is that um, a lot of people in the Latinx community might be afraid to reach out because of immigration issues. Uh, and, and just like you said, not seeing people that um, look like them. Yeah, the number of uh, psychologists, for example, that are Latinx and speak Spanish um, uh, is, is very low. Um, we've seen it increase with with uh, with newer generations of students. It's still pretty low. So the chances are are that if you reach out to a provider, there's going to be very few who um, are from your background or who might understand your background or speak Spanish or at least be familiar with uh, what immigrants go through. And so having someone who uh, who knows that experience is awfully helpful uh, to people feeling understood. Mm -hmm. They don't have to explain their culture. They don't have to explain, you know, the trauma of immigration, those kinds of things. So having that is important. Yeah. You know, I think when you are reaching out for mental health care, the most important thing is trust and, and feeling yes. like you can actually trust somebody to talk First of all, we didn't even used to talk about this kind of a thing. So this is this is very new for a lot of people to even just talk openly 
about this growing up. Did you talk a lot about mental health care in your house? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that wasn't something that we talked about at all. We didn't uh, really uh, even think about therapy or psychologists as an option unless, you know, like many families, we thought unless you were mentally ill. Uh, and so now I think this new generation of, of this new generation that's in college now, they're very mental health literate. And so when we go out, they're used to talking about mental health. This is not a stigma for them. And so when we're doing outreach, they're trying to normalize it and, and talk about how they themselves benefit from, you know, mental health or, or well-being. So your clinic is in its final year. And I, I was surprised yes. to hear that. Tell me what is happening and what is next. So we had this is our eighth year. Uh, we've trained 40 clinicians uh, who are uh, bilingual, bicultural. Uh, we've seen thousands of 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 uh, clients, hours, um, especially during the pandemic when uh, the world shut down, but not for our population who has still had to go to work. Uh, we were there and we transitioned into doing telehealth. Um, turns out that there's a lot of advantages for our population for, for to do telehealth because they don't have to um, worry about getting to the appointments. They, they can work around, you know, sometimes pretty demanding work schedules. Um, and so all of that has been going great. I've been able to um, attract some really great students uh, to, uh, and they've benefited. They're employed out there in the world. It's great. Uh, but I can only take so many people. And so at some point, I'm, I'm also an associate dean with full-time responsibilities. And so when I stop taking students, the number of clinicians is slowly uh, diminishing. There are some efforts. Um, you know, I had a partnership with the schools to have an in-school clinic. We're still working to see if that might be an outlet for our folks. There's some discussions at the university about how to continue this uh, community engagement. But right now, we're really focused on winding this year down uh, and, and making it a, a celebration rather than feeling like uh, we should feel bad because we can't go on. But, you know, there's there's limitations. So the people that you have been serving, uh, how will those people now get services? Will they have to, to find another place? Right. We really have scoured everywhere to find providers. Uh, we have a website um, that we have on purpose been putting a lot of information uh, about mental health and where to get help. Uh, it's still, you know, it's up in the air where you can get uh, get help. For a lot of times, we've been the only game in town, and that's been that's been hard because there's a pressure on us to, if we don't help people, then who will? And I don't know that that bigger piece of, of the uh, infrastructure has, has been addressed. It's Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. We could all use a little hope right now, not just adults, but especially our teenagers. And we have got some for you today. Let me first take you to the loft where there is a conversation happening. Ava is telling her friend Jordan how she decompresses. Okay, so I really enjoy meditating and then journaling. Nice. So normally I'll sit down on my bed or on the floor, whatever feels comfortable, and I'll just sit down, stay calm, and breathe in and breathe out. And breathe in and breathe out. And I'll just do that as many times as I need to calm myself down before I make an irrational decision. Mm. And then I'll grab my journal 
and I'll open it up and write about whatever's going on. And I like to grab a pen that matches the color of my emotions. Wait, how do you do that? <laughs> so if I'm mad, maybe I'll pick a color like red or pink. Oh. So if you were happy, what color would you pick? I'd probably pick yellow because it's oh, my favorite and it's color. bright and sunny. <laughs> that is a piece from season two episode two of the show Hope Givers. You were hearing host Jordan Rice talking with her friend Ava. Hope Givers is an Emmy award-winning show that focuses on mental wellness. Its audience is primarily students in grades six through 12, and you can see it at gpb.org as part of our educational effort here in studio. To talk about the show is Tamlin Hall. He's founder and CEO of Hope Givers, in Georgia. He's also a filmmaker and UGA faculty member. Hey. Yeah, go dogs. <laughs> Absolutely. How about them? How about them? Oh my God. And how about Hope Givers? Talk about how did you even um, get the name Hope Givers? Where'd that come from? You know, I, I, I had a film called Holding On that, I, that was based on a true story about my friend growing up. I grew up in LaGrange, Georgia, about an hour south of Atlanta small town. And uh, he had, he, he had so much hope. He had so much compassion for people. Uh, he was self-medicating an undiagnosed mental illness when he was in high school. And uh, he died by suicide. He was 19. And he made a direct impact in my life, of course, right now as an artist, as an advocate, as everything. Uh, and so we were taking his film around called Holding On. And I would be on panels across the country with families who had lost a, a son or daughter to suicide or dealing with the opioid crisis or addiction or any of these tough things that like we, we just don't talk about. The stigma, the shame, the secrets, all of that. And there were these individuals in all of these cities that were on panels with me that were creating nonprofits, initiatives, community outreach programs, and they had the hope. And they were sitting there saying, like, I'm going to, my story is going to matter to others. And I was like, oh, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to tell your story. And I want, like, my friends down in uh, Valdosta to know about what's happening in Salt Lake City or L.A. or, you know, all of these things. So it's really like just being a conduit and, like, connecting. Mm -hmm. So neither of us are in grades six through 12 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the secret is out. Right, right. But I found so much value in that moment yeah. between those two. I was breathing in and out too. Yeah, it, it sounded a lot like what my therapist tells me. It's amazing. Right. It's ama So right now, like we're seeing a trend. We're seeing a trend that students and youth are, are open and wanting to talk about mental health and wellness where us as adults, not necessarily so. So it's a little systemic on that on that end, and that's what uh, is so important about the series that we have because it's teen. The teens are talking; they're using their voice, and they are showing us as adults. Wow, we can learn something from them. Right, I'm learning from them. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. So, um, what's the vibe of the show? You're this. This takes place in the loft. Yeah, yeah. T talk about the vibe and how you created that. So we wanted to. We, we, the, the goal was let's create an educational show that's entertaining. Mm -hmm. For teens, because it's so hard. Teens are so cool. Like it is, it, they say like middle school, it, you're like high school. High schoolers are like college. So you have to do something in a way that really tries to to gravitate their attention in terms of entertainment and, and engaging. So The Loft, we created as like a, a retro MTV vibe. And that's really where it came from. Like, I, you know, I grew up, I'm not going to say how old I am, but hey, I grew up in those <laughs> days where MTV was still showing those music videos <laughs> like they should. And like they were presenting them like, and a loft mm -hmm. and on couches and it was a safe space and it was comfortable and artists could come and be themselves. And it was like, how can we create that for our teens to be able to talk about important topics that they are going through, but do it in a way that's entertaining and educational and engaging? Yeah. Yeah. 
So a lot of the series addresses bullying. Yes. And that is a, uh, I think, a major problem today, um, not just because of what happens at school, but mm-hmm. social media. Oh, big time. Right. Big time. We're having I, I feel like this, I, you know, I, again, bullying has never gone away. It's been around for a long, long, long time. And but there seems to be a trend with the superintendents that I've been speaking to lately in school districts that that bullying is coming back and especially the cyberbullying, the social media and all of those aspects that are added now that we didn't have when we were growing up. Yeah. Yeah. So you all address a lot of that on the mm-hmm. show um, and, and talk a little bit more about um, your young people and, and how uh, they're finding this experience. So. One thing that we really want to convey in our series is protective factors. And I can tell everybody, I can wrap mental health and wellness around everything. So when we're talking about bullying, it directly impacts mental health and wellness for the person who is getting bullied, but also the bully and finding these common grounds of the why. Why and how can we create some coping strategies around these protective factors that we have. So then there's not a crisis where some of the trauma is addressed. We, we bring in trusted adults. Trusted adults are so important. Peer-to-peer support is so important and kindness is so important. So that is something that we are directly influencing right now is a positive culture and climate everywhere we go because you're an adult. I'm an adult. We like positive people. So let's like do that for our teens and our youth. Like they like positive people that, that influences change. Ah, so how do young people um, come to find a trusted adult? You know, you would think that they would find that at home, but not everybody's going to find that. Not everybody's going to find that. And that's a great, great, great question. Uh, Right now, what we find is that one out of four students in the state of Georgia do not have a trusted adult in their school. And that is a problem because they are in school a lot. So where do you go? What does that look like? And really, the number one thing that we tell adults is listen. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. If we could just listen, Mm -hmm. we're going to find out so much. And also we are so wrapped up in our own world of that. You know, I mean, I hate to admit it. Sometimes we're a hot mess. Like we're adults, (laughs) like we got stuff going on and we're Mm -hmm. like, who are we to be able to be a trusted adult to a youth? But I can promise you, if you open up and are vulnerable with your own life of what's happening, they're going to trust you because you are relating to them and they are relating to you. And when you do that, that is more connectedness and that is a protective factor. And that helps us going through a mental health crisis. Mm. Now, let me tell you, I got a tip for listening. Do not be flapping your gums. That is not listening. Talking down to these young people, right? Yes. Don't talk at. At. That's what it is. Close your mouth, put your phone down, and actually just listen. And there's no, it's a no judgment zone. You no know? judgment zone. Yeah. Absolutely. You hear that with a lot of our teens of like, what would make a strong, trusted adult is the judgment. Mm-hmm. It's that, again, I'm going to go back to like us as adults. We don't like to be judged. That's, I mean, there's just so many things that we sit there and we go, well, why are we have a double standard with our youth when we're human? We're all human beings. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's just take some of the stuff that we're doing that we don't like and let's say, oh, yeah, OK, well, we're going to do that for our teens and our youth as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some of the other topics, uh, resilience, goal setting, advocacy, uh, those are our topics that are on the show as well. Yeah, we, we well, our, our series is Health Education Standards Aligned, and that sounds very boring. And one thing that we did was as a filmmaker and as an artist, like we worked with the Georgia Department of Education to figure out what standards can align to our series. And we really found that resiliency, 
advocacy, goal setting, and having a trusted adult are the four four main topics that we can focus on in every episode. You'll get at least two of those. Okay. So what's one way that parents can engage their young people after school when they, you know, come home? <laughs> I would say what, what you just said, Leah, put your phone down. Just put your phone down. Like connect. Connect in a way that allows them to share in this experience called life in a no judgment zone, safe space where they are able to open up and say some things that maybe are tough to talk about. Maybe they don't want to talk about, but they trust you enough as a trusted adult to allow you the space to speak. And you're just going to listen. And I'll tell you, hugs matter. Uh, okay. <laughs> Kindness matters. That is something that we forget about with like the human connection of just being there. Just being there. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. We've been talking with Tamlin Hall, creator of the show Hope Givers, which is on gpb.org. Make sure you check this out. Uh, it is so well done. Thank, well, thank you. you so much. Thank, thank you, you for having me. Yeah, we are we are blessed. Laughter really is the best medicine. That's according to lots of medical practitioners and Middle Georgia comedian Patricia Forehand, plus healthy cooking ideas from Agatha Achindu. That's ahead on Georgia in Play. back to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. It feels so good to laugh, and there is a reason for that. Laughter, as it turns out, promotes many physical and mental health benefits. According to the Mayo Clinic, a good laugh relieves stress. It also stimulates your heart, lungs, and muscles, and increases the endorphins that are released by your brain. And laughter can even be good business. Our next guest knows all about that personally. Patricia Forehand is a retired teacher from Middle Georgia. After a 30-year successful career as an educator, she all of a sudden decided, I want to be a comedian. And so she did it. I didn't talk about sex much with my parents when I was growing up. And when I did, they would use these euphemisms that would confuse the hell out of me. For example, on prom night, my mama said, Patty, don't you give away that milk for free, or he's not going to want to buy the cow. Well, what the hell does that mean? That is some of her work, and she now joins us via Zoom. So I want to ask you first, as a kid growing up in middle Georgia, you were the one that made people laugh. And I want to know, I always wonder this about uh, professional comedians. Did you know you were funny as a kid? I never really realized that I was that funny. I just I thought everybody was funny. So, Right. And did, yeah. did your parents think you were funny? Yes, I think so. I was the youngest of four sisters, and I was kind of an accident. I came eight years after, you know, the last one. So um, they weren't expecting me. And so I think by the time 
I arrived, they were kind of lax about parenting and, you know, let the, let the other daughters raise her. <laughs> so, so yeah, I was quite the comedian then, um, always trying to get the attention by being silly. So, yeah. Yeah. I know it is so hard to laugh in tough times. And I know you know this personally. Uh, your mother struggled with some mental health issues along the way. And I, I know you tried to make her laugh. What did you do? At the time, we didn't really understand that there were mental health issues. We knew something was going on. She went through big highs where, you know, she would just conquer the world and she wrote books and, you know, she led conferences and, you know, just all of that when she was on a high. And then when she was on a low, it was deep depression. Um, at the time, my father was also going through some physical problems. He he had a disease that was degenerative. And so the household was quite glum sometimes. And I just tried to lighten it up by saying funny things and trying to brighten my mom's day. So I think um I think I reacted to that. I didn't do it knowingly. I didn't try to do it in a way that I thought I, I just realized that that made everything happier around the house when we were laughing and it did kind of bring her out of her lows so I would just just say silly things you know like I know one time she was talking about oh I have to do house cleaning I'm gonna go clean the toilets and I made a joke about toilets you have to clean them I thought they just stay you know that kind of thing and <laughs> she just roared laughing and you know just tried to make it easier on everybody in the household so it's it's amazing that you would come to do this as a career. You taught for 30 years, and then you decided to respond to this calling of being a comedian. What is that moment like? I mean, when it does actually become like a thing in your mind, like, I'm really going to do this. Oh, my goodness. Well, I knew that I was going to retire after 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, I was just exhausted. Teachers, you're amazing. You have such a stressful but amazing job. But I knew that I was tired and I couldn't give my very best anymore. So I decided to do something different. I went to an open mic kind of as a challenge from a friend. She kept telling me that I was funny at the faculty meetings and things like that when I presented professional development and said I should try comedy. And then a couple of other friends said the same thing. So I said, why not? So I went to an open mic thinking that I would bomb and, you know, that I wouldn't like it. But um, when I walked in, all young people in their 20s, I thought, how can this old lady be funny for them? But I did have a whole row of elderly people my age said so they were there to support me um but did the open mic it was amazing I felt like I had been just reborn I mean it was like something that I wanted and didn't know that I if that makes sense it was like a whole world opening up for me so yes so then you know I got hooked that's when you were that's really when you were your second yes. career was born so you know your style of comedy it reminds me of like Roseanne Barr when she first started and Ellen DeGeneres when she started you know first started this is before they had their tv shows and all of that how would you describe your style is that is that very similar Thank you. I mean, those are compliments right there. I think those are amazing compliments because I admire both of them. Um, 
I think my style is really, I just share life's moments with everyone. All the little things that we all do and see, the daily life, the family life, that's what I share through my comedy, especially being married for, you know, uh, almost 40 years. I've been married for almost 40 years. So I talk a lot about my husband and even people who are not married can identify with, you know, <laughs> the things that men do. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's just sharing real life, but in a funny way. So, yes. Yeah. Any advice for people who have a passion that they've buried down deep and, you know, instead for a more practical life, what would be your advice? I know we put so many obstacles in front of ourselves. You know, we, I think as a society, especially women, we think that we're not good enough. We're not pretty enough. We're not smart enough. We're not this. We're not young enough. And we just put those obstacles there. They're really not there. They're imaginary. Not those daggum things out of your way and go pursue your dreams. Um, I, I never, ever would have thought that I would be doing things like this, talking to Leah. I mean, that is amazing. But yet here I am. And it's just because you have to put that fear away and put those illusions of those obstacles out of the way and go for it. I mean, you just have to go for it. All right. We've been spending some time with Patricia Forehand, a professional comedian from Middle Georgia. Thank you so much, Patricia. We enjoyed you. Thank you. You are amazing. This was a lot of fun. A lot of us want to eat healthier, but the drive through just seems so much easier and cheaper. Not so, says nutritionist Agatha Achindu. Coming up, her tips for quick, affordable, home-cooked meals that she promises will keep you healthier. That's ahead on Georgia and Play. to Georgia in play. All right, we've talked about laughter and deep breathing as a way to nourish our souls. Well, now let's talk about food to nourish our bodies. What we eat is just as important to our mental health as it is our physical health. That's according to Agatha Achindu, a wellness coach in Cobb County and author of the new cookbook. It's called Bountiful Cooking. For more on this, I took a trip to Agatha's kitchen to learn. When I first moved to the United States, mm -hmm. in Maryland, my friends would say, follow the onion. <laughs> because I was cooking all the time and helping people change how they're making their everyday foods. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Onions are just one of the ingredients that Agatha's using in her meal today. Today I'm making the pan-seared kale, pan-seared shrimp kale. Mm. It's super delicious, super easy to make. That's Agatha's focus as a nutritionist, whole simple meals that feed your body and soul, and they're fast to make. I am such a huge fan of food that also tastes absolutely delicious because my belief, it doesn't matter how healthy food is, if it's not going to do the number one thing that food is supposed to do for us, give you comfort, make you love it. I don't even bother with it. Agatha is from Cameroon and grew up on a farm consuming fresh foods daily. As a kid growing up, I remember looking back that almost 90% of the things that I would eat, mm -hmm. 
I know where it's from. Whether it's from our farm or from the local farmer's market. But when she immigrated to America, she was shocked to see that that's not everyone's reality. Oh my goodness, the biggest one was walking into the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And I'm asking my friend, okay, where's the grocery? Because in my life, I've never seen so many canned foods. Right? I come That's from when she decided to take action, not just for herself, but her new home in America, her community. My goal was trying to make my community be the healthiest that they, they can. We've been made to believe in a society where so much money comes from sickness care. We've been made to believe that sickness mm -hmm. is, is something that we don't have control over. Absolutely. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we do. The choices that we make each and every day impact how we how we live, how we age. Mm -hmm. How you live every day is how you're going to age. Freshness, that's Agatha's goal in her cookbook, okay Bountiful Cooking. Take time, right. right? But everyday meals needs to be something that you put together. And, you know, that's a bit too much right. for, for everyday food. Mm -hmm. It's a bit too much. Yes. And because normally that's what I would see with packaged foods, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of all these unnecessary ingredients. But when you're cooking at home, mm -hmm. 10 ingredients, some, some of my meals have less. And that's what wellness means to Agatha, being intentional with what you put on your plate and the energy you put into the world every day. Wellness to me is how I intentionally treat myself mm -hmm. every day. So when I get up in the morning, I am purposeful about what is going to give me joy. It might not be food someday. It might be me picking up the phone and calling a friend that I haven't spoken to mm -hmm. for a long time. That's wellness to me. It's not a particular thing. It's how I feel, how vibrant, mm -hmm. and the gratitude for just waking up mm -hmm. in the morning, like, oh, thank you, Jesus. This is another day that I can correct some of the things that didn't go right the day before. That to me is wellness. And that's our show for today. We want to hear from you. Send us a note to askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen to the program at gpb.org. Thanks for listening to Georgia in Play. Thank you.